Welcome to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Jones, joined today by one of the most well-known serverless developer advocates, uh, James Beswick. James is a serverless builder, product manager, and currently a four-time AWS certified serverless evangelist, also known as a senior developer advocate at Amazon Web Services. James has had a long career in the IT field and is a frequent speaker at conferences, meetups, community days, and AWS events. James is well-known for his blogs, workshops, proof-of-concept applications, and white papers surrounding serverless and more broadly, AWS. How are you doing today, James? Hi, Ryan. Thanks very much. Great to be on your show. Yeah, no, it's great to have you. Um, you know, as we started talking about, uh, I've, I've followed your work for quite some time. You're always popping up on Twitter. And uh, I went through your blog series that you've been doing on a whole bunch of different topics. So uh, I'm excited to have you on. Thanks. Can't wait to tell you all about it. Well, yeah. So just to jump into it, the, uh, the first topic which I had in mind was uh, diving into how you got started in serverless and how that pursuit of serverless and maybe even cloud kind of blossomed into where you are today. Yeah, so I started first in IT probably 20 years ago or thereabouts, and I've been working through building lots of applications over the years, first as a software developer, then as a product manager. And I got interested in just the difficult problems of IT, of how you build things. Before I joined AWS, I had a company where we built applications for startups. And what I discovered was that we were building lots of applications over and over with a lot of common boilerplate kind of code. And all of this was on Elastic Beanstalk on EC2. And after doing 30 or 40 applications, we were finding that the management of these instances was taking up a lot of time. I came across serverless completely by accident. I discovered it at serverless conf where I took part in a hacking day where I went through and built some applications. I saw some really eye-opening things from people like Ben Kehoe. And I started looking and exploring this and realized it was a huge opportunity to simplify what we were building. So that was three years ago, which seems like quite a long time now. And since then, I switched everything over to building serverlessly. And I trained a lot of our developers for this role on how to build things this way. I ended up writing so many blogs and doing things in, in the community that I was offered this role. And I thought this was not a great opportunity to continue doing exactly that, talking about serverless with the community. So it's really totally by accident, but I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, wow. That's, uh, that's a pretty cool story. It's, um, so you started with like consulting, doing, uh, doing Elastic Beanstalk, um, saw some like things there i've done a i've done beanstalk projects in the past i definitely know that once you get it up it's like oh man now you have to like all the different monitoring or if, if like getting into the like sshing into it to try to figure out what's going on so that's definitely a lot um and so yeah so that's cool so you which serverless conference was it was it uh 2017 2018 or i think it was 2017 from memory in new york but it was really interesting because i remember seeing the a cloud guru um, brothers, you know, uh, talking about how they build their platform serverlessly. And up until that point, really, all I knew about it was that you could do image resizing because I'd seen it at reInvent. And I couldn't believe the capabilities of the platform when I started digging into this more and more. And so for, yeah, for startups, we were working with one of the great benefits was that scalability is handled for you. So we tended to find that about two in 10 of the startups we were working with had success with their applications, but we never were sure which two in 10 would be successful. And when we were building these MVPs, part of the problem is building scalability into MVPs is really a contradiction in terms, because if you're doing that, you're not building an MVP. But then if the product takes off and becomes very popular and you haven't built scalability in, then you end up scrambling to rewrite things. And so this was a really good fit for us that we could build these applications. And if they were suddenly popular, the scalability side of it was, was managed automatically. And that really was the point where I realized what the value was. 
yeah, it's kind of cool that two out of 10 were successful. And then you got to kind of see that that process take place. Less cool that you had to scramble <laughs> to kind of to kind of figure everything out. But yeah, so when, when you when you started seeing the power of serverless, when you started adding that into these startups, um, what was the result of that in terms of uh, was it was it building scalability uh, directly in? Did it did it let, lighten any other overhead involved with the application process? There was definitely some a learning curve we had to go through because you have to definitely do a few things differently. And at the point we were doing it, not many people were talking about the process of learning serverless. We're, we're right on the cutting edge of just learning all this. And that's where I realized there were some real changes ahead because one of the biggest changes is you just write a lot less code. You know, you're not writing lots of um, authentication layers or database connectivity libraries or anything like this. And getting used to writing less code is a bit of a practice. And then you start to get more into the idea that you're really building things that uh, jump across a range of different services. And so you're more in the distributed architecture design side of things. And so there were definitely some steps we had to go through to learn how to do it properly. But it was truly amazing. You know, some of the applications we put out that, that went to um, you know, I'd say that sort of medium scale fairly quickly just worked seamlessly out of the box. So to me, that was just an amazing payoff because initially when you're learning all these things, like, you, you know, with all technology, you're never quite sure how it's going to work and really sit until you see it in practice. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and one part that you said there, which has been really interesting is that less code takes time. And I think that that's a really interesting, probably a deep, actually a deep topic in itself. Why, why would less, why would less code take, uh, take time to adjust to? It's a really good question, isn't it? Because I think a lot of the time you get used to building things with frameworks where you become very comfortable with the parts that have to be there. And you really take it as granted that those frameworks are going to do certain things for you. And so you develop ways and practices that you feel comfortable with. And when you've got these new services coming in that can do that work, it feels a little bit counterintuitive about how that that works. But you know, when you look at Lambda in particular, in a well-designed Lambda project, typically your functions are fairly small. And you get some real benefits from that. They become easier to test. Um, you know, as a developer, I find it easier to see what 50 to 100 lines of code are doing instead of pouring through tens of thousands. And also, when you get really good at it, I found that you could move code from project to project very easily. So if you had one function that was doing one specialized piece of work, it'd be fairly easy using environment variables just to lift and shift that to other projects, which really made the key, the code reuse side of it actually, you know, very beneficial. Yeah, and, and something that pops in my mind um, that I was planning on getting into already, but we're kind of already starting to get there, is around uh, the philosophy of serverless. So when you think about uh, serverless and you think about uh, cloud or the future of cloud, what what comes to mind, and how do you think about um, you know what we what it might look like in a year or two years from now? Well, I think the patterns are you know over the last few years have been that. IT teams are under an enormous amount of stress. You know, we have we don't get typically lots of headcount, but we do get more features to build and more systems to manage. And there's generally in the industry been a trend towards having developers learn more and more. And you have this concept of the, you know, the full stack developer. Essentially, it's, it's a person who seems to know a lot of different things. And we have to do things that make it easier for these developers to do more without working 24 hours a day. And so a lot of what we're driven in with serverless, when we talk to customer, customers about what they want to see in, in Lambda and other services, is about lifting that load, making things easier for people so they can build things that are agile uh, without having to add more people, more infrastructure, and, and other things. And so really, when you look at what Lambda has been releasing over the last couple of years, it's been driving towards that constantly where you have more integrations, better developer experience, better tooling. I think those are the trends that you'll see continuing really you know, for, as, for as long as we can see. 
Awesome. Um, and, and something that I would like to uh, kind of dial back to talking about like how you got into your current role as a uh, senior developer advocate at, at AWS. When it comes to doing that on a day to day basis, like I know that there's been a lot of transitions that have happened for everyone. So when it comes to like your day to day now, were you traveling before as a developer advocate? Are you are you doing mostly remote stuff now? Do you still travel and get out there? At the moment, we're not traveling. At the moment, everything is virtual. So before all, before all of this, we went to lots of conferences and summits and events and a lot, actually a lot of meetups locally. They're a great way to meet people in the community and have conversations with developers. Now everything is, has moved to an online environment. And so typically there's some pros and cons to that. You know, the pros are we can go to meetups that are anywhere. So, you know, recently I spoke to a Brazil meetup group, which I wouldn't have had that opportunity necessarily when we we're traveling. And so we can meet more people through the virtual events and I can talk to people more directly through um, all those sorts of tools but it's definitely just a different environment right now where I think everybody's just trying to get to grips with how to do this but you know we all hope that uh, the travel comes back at some point soon yeah absolutely and and when it comes to like traveling around or just going to these virtual meetups um, you know specifically the, the thing in Brazil that's actually really cool um, that you you had the opportunity to do that and so how do you, how do you think about that and I guess like what because the cloud or serverless developer advocate role uh, seems like something or it takes a certain type of personality. And so have you always kind of leaned towards uh, doing these type of community uh, actions? What kind of, I mean, I guess if we dial back, what led you to writing all these blog articles? Because assumingly you were doing that in your free time, right? Yeah, I, I've always been a writer. So, you know, when I was a teenager, I used to write games reviews for magazines when I lived in England. And I've always, I've been an early blogger for a long time and I've always found that I best connect with an audience when I want to discuss something. And so for me, a lot of technology is about exploring things that you don't understand well at the time. And the best way to, to do these things is to try and learn about them and then talk about them in a blog and engage with the audience. So for me, when I discovered that the developer advocate role actually existed, it was almost a perfect dream job because I enjoyed this. You know, I get the opportunity to find play with some of the world's greatest services and build things that are really interesting and talk to developers. And it's not, you know, a marketing job where I'm telling people what to use. I actually get to talk to developers about what works, what doesn't work so well, what they would like to see in the products. And I can really engage quite a lot of people in this role. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, it sounds like a it's like a really good fit for, you know, pre all pre serverless, all these things. It's like you're already starting to or you're already going that direction and this is just kind of ran into each other. So that, that's really cool. Um, and to, on that topic of you know writing blogs and all this stuff, uh, you're actually a huge writer on the AWS blog. Do you do you mind uh, kind of talking about that a little bit and how people could potentially uh, find you on there and read about your stuff? Yeah, so AWS has a number of different blogs, and there's one called the Compute Blog, and you can get to it from my from my Twitter account. Uh, which, which is Twitter forward slash JBESW. And the Compute Blog represents lots of different writings by DAs. Um, account managers, systems architects, all sorts of people in AWS who, who want to write about different topics. And so quite a few of the DAs at my team, we write quite frequently for the compute blog and enables us to talk about different subjects and how services fit together and you know what we're currently thinking about certain things and also link out to code examples and that sort of thing. When I started about the, when I started this job about 18 months ago, I wanted to build some large format examples I didn't feel that had been done before or not very frequently. And so I started down the road of building some of these projects that I've done recently like Ask Around Me and Happy Path and some of these other things that show you how you can build full-scale examples using this. And so a lot of this actually is just comes down to planning because obviously there's a lot of writing and coding involved and you just have to try and 
organize your time to do this. My aim is to really have something that goes out each week that is talking about the topics that I see as being relevant at the time. Yeah, this is a great this is a great topic as well, which is, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners are, are curious and so am I. Um, how does your time break down to be able to put out that much content to be able to organize your stuff? Do you use any methods or do you have any like uh, tips that, that you have for time management? Yeah, I use a lot of post-its, actually. I've always been a whiteboard person with post-its. And so I find when I, as long as I have a post-it with a task on and it goes on the board, I won't forget to do it. But I'm also pretty rigid in terms of how I manage my time. You know, when I had the company before this, how you manage your time really matters. When you're building projects, you want to be on time and on budget. So I bring, bring a lot of that with me. But, you know, at AWS, it's a very busy place. So we have lots of different things going off. We're involved in launches and testing of things internally. Lots of meetings about what we'd like to see in products from what we're hearing from customers. And we also engage a lot of customers who email me and, and send me DMs all the time on Twitter. And so a lot of the time you're having to just balance lots of different things. But I find as long as I'm making progress in my in my projects, in my larger scale projects at a pace where I'm staying relatively on track, it's it's okay. But there's definitely a lot of different things going on at the same time. So you have to be fairly flexible and be able to switch tasks fairly frequently. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and then uh, to move into uh, some of the stuff that you actually have been writing about really frequently over the past uh, few months um, is EventBridge. And uh, EventBridge came out and, uh, you know, heard about it. People were raving about it. There's still a lot of confusion. I think there's like some new terminology that got introduced with EventBridge, like event rules and event bus and, and how those things kind of work together. Do you mind giving the James Beswick breakdown of like, what is EventBridge? Yeah. Well, EventBridge, I think, is a really interesting service. It was launched at the New York Summit last year, and it's an evolution of CloudWatch events. So CloudWatch events have been around for years, but EventBridge adds new features and functionality you know, and, and extends the capabilities of it further. And all the future development is actually going into EventBridge. But it essentially... It's an event bus at, at core. So as an event bus, you can use this as a way of decoupling your applications and microservices very seamlessly. And it's one of those things where you have to play with it a little bit to realize how powerful that is. Because if you've worked on anything that's a sort of medium or large scale project, you realize how difficult it is to coordinate all these different pieces and certain microservices. And very quickly, you need some sort of messaging layer that can decouple these things. And, you know, you've always had things like SQS and SNS, but EventBridge really takes it to a whole new level because you can ingest events from third parties like SaaS providers or from other AWS accounts or from other event buses. And you can publish events from your own applications. And it actually becomes a very important extensibility layer so if you're building larger applications, your, your applications can emit events into event buses and other people who want to integrate with your application can do so from the event bus without having to integrate directly to your application. And so at its heart, really, you have an event bus, which you have, you have one in your account automatically that's default. You configure rules on that bus, which essentially are just filters. They're ways of filtering events that you care about. And you set up targets for those rules. So if, if an event happens that you're interested in, it can invoke a target such as a Lambda function. And really, there's not much to it beyond that. The events are simply JSON, and the, the pattern matching happens with JSON as well. And so a lot of people who work in enterprises who've seen similar things before with, with event buses, this is familiar but different because back in the time where event buses were popular in corporations, Often they were seen as a single point of failure, whereas when you look at EventBridge, this is a highly available service that really scales. To, it currently handles trillions of events a month. It's on a, it's on a massive scale. And we've also introduced other features where 
if you look at some of the problems in, in managing events, like just keeping track of schemas, we introduced a service called Schema Registry that automates some of that and lets you download code bindings directly into IDE so you can automate the creation of classes directly from events. And so it's actually fairly simple to get your hands around and use some of the some of the sample applications to get started. Conceptually, it's not difficult, but the capabilities are really pretty astounding. And so, you know, looking at this, uh, you know, I've, I'm finding it really, really interesting because uh, I've been working with serverless over the past, you know, two or three years. And now it's kind of at a point where I've seen those gaps happen, like you were mentioning, um, where just managing events, microservices, all these things uh, can be pretty complex. And also um, having a centralized location of that uh, where people can understand how this whole thing works. It reminds me a lot of going back to like uh, almost like black box development where like, you know, and this still happens obviously, but somebody creates an EC2 instance, SSHs into it, downloads a whole bunch of stuff. And then that person leaves six months later and no one has any idea what's going on. And so it's really nice to like the, that some of those things like the schema registry, uh, for instance, might help surface uh, and even give an understanding about how the application and how somebody can just hook into all these things where it's, it's almost like self-documenting, right? Yeah, and you know, JSON, um, it, it's, it's very simple to understand and read when you look at it. So if you, you know, it has a, a complete inventory of all the sorts of events you see within AWS. So it makes it a very simple place to go and find what an event looks like from S3, for example. You can pull one up and take a look at that. And you know, it, it, when you're handling just JSON around, it actually is a much simpler way to, to manage development. And especially if you're working with Lambda, where really your unit testing can become very robust if you take this sort of approach. Yeah. And, and something else too with this is like uh, inside that article, I think it was um, uh, reducing custom code by using advanced rules mm. in Amazon EventBridge. And it's really interesting because I, you know, I've, I talked with Eric Johnson recently uh, and a few, a few other people, some, some about AppSync and the VTL files. And, and then uh, Eric Johnson was talking about service integrations directly from API Gateway to Dynamo. Um, in your article, you kind of talk about how you can do these kind of advanced filters and, and those advanced filters allow you to almost uh, take away a Lambda function for some level of, uh, of, of transforming the event coming in. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so with, with this, if, if we've had filters and services like SNS before, but the filters within EventBridge are fairly sophisticated. You can take an event coming in, something like an S3 event would be an example, where typically if you then invoke a Lambda function, you might only care about um, objects that have a certain naming convention. Now, you can do that currently with an S3 to Lambda integration, but what you cannot do is really complicated things. Like if you, if you imagine having a dozen buckets where you put all your sales in a different bucket, you have sales January, sales February, and each time an object arrives, you want that to invoke a Lambda function, but the bucket may not exist yet because the March, April, May bucket isn't there. You can use EventBridge to manage that kind of integration where suddenly you're truly decoupling the buckets and the objects from the downstream processing. And so really, it gives you a lot of capabilities. Anything that's within the S3 event that includes things like principal ID or IP address or object size, all of those different things can be used by these filters in EventBridge that make it much easier to then figure out which events you care about. And you're not charged for those events. Any events coming into EventBridge from AWS services are free. And so it's much more cost efficient to do the filtering at the EventBridge stage instead of passing it off to the Lambda function first. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And and the follow-up to that is, uh, I was reading as well that uh, you can have five targets per rule. And and it, and it's, you know, so for instance, you have a rule, does the filtering, and then it can invoke uh, five different targets. How does that um, how does that compare with the SNS or SQS and 
when would you would you use one over the other or would you use them together? Yeah, great question. So you know, these three services, when you look at SQS, SNS, and EventBridge, have some apparent similarities. And there's times when you might use one or another, and you know, might not be much difference. But there are some actual, some fairly big differences too. So SNS and Cloud and um, EventBridge are fairly similar in many respects. But SNS has a different list of targets and definitely of a different scale. You know, SNS can send uh, messages. I think it's up to 12, 12.5 million subscribers on a single topic. Whereas EventBridge is limited to five, but and you know, SNS has a lower latency than EventBridge when it's passing across these events. What's interesting is you can use them in combinations. There's nothing stopping you making an SNS topic a target for EventBridge. And really, once you start getting into these advanced patterns of using them in combination, where you can bring queues into that too to bring in some real resilience into these architectures, the three together become very powerful. Wow. Yeah. Already, I am. I'm seeing it right now. That's really cool. Um, and so when it comes to uh, to building these things, or as, does Sam support EventBridge out of the box? Yes, yeah, so Sam supports all three of the services. Um, now, EventBridge, I, well, some of those articles you're referring to, I get, I put some links to some GitHub repos that people may find useful because I've put Sam templates for everything, so you can very quickly copy one of those, just clone the repo, and see how it works. But the critical thing in Sam is that you're setting up the rules uh, correctly and the permissions correctly, and so if you see that from a basic template like some of the examples I've given, it's much easier to start there than building everything from scratch. Gotcha. Okay, awesome. And then when it comes to another article that you wrote on EventBridge, um, you said, and, and one of those was uh, decoupling larger applications with Amazon EventBridge. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really interesting because, you know, when we think about this gigantic, uh, even serverless, um, it's, it's kind of interesting because now we're look, almost looking at like legacy serverless to potentially this new thing. Um, and so when you talk about decoupling these larger applications where maybe you had to build these workarounds uh, still with fully managed services on AWS, but now EventBridge can kind of help streamline that architecture. Can you give an idea for what that looks like? Yeah, there's a couple of really interesting ideas here that both hit me around the same time when I wrote that article. And the first was that when you build these CloudFormation applications or SAM applications, typically many times you're required to deploy the code along with the resources you're using. So if you want the Lambda function with an S3 bucket, they both have to be in the same stack when you're launching them. And of course, frequently that's not really going to be possible, especially in enterprise situations where resources already exist and you want to be able to combine your application with those. And so this sort of decoupling through EventBridge makes that possible where you can work with pre-existing resources just for part of your application. But the second part I thought was really, really interesting based upon my experience was you're never quite sure what you'll be building as a developer three months from now. And so you build these architectures at the time where you think you've covered everything that you know, all the likely features that will be needed. And then you find a couple of months from now, there are requests that you, you've never heard of before and it changes the direction of what you're building. And what this type of approach does is it lets you emit events early on in your designs for consumers that may not even exist yet. You may be publishing events into the ether and no one's there. But later on, when you start building these features, you'll be very happy you did because you can essentially build these smaller microservices consume from those events. So I got really interested in this idea of decoupling simply because it means you're building things that are scoped down in a much smaller way and they're much easier to manage. And you're not always dealing with such massive amounts of infrastructure just to roll out an application. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. So it's almost like um, instead of instead of going like one service to or the UI to let's say API gateway to a Lambda function um, and building out that single case and then having to expand on that in the future. Um, you're almost like building the pipeline 
which which anything can connect to in the future. And so the events that are flowing through it, you can add things to it um, as you want in a completely decoupled nature. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, and so the the example in the in the blog post was from an from an application that I'd published a few weeks previously, showing how you could index enterprise documents into Elasticsearch. And what I'd shown there was that even as a fairly simple application, it had lots of extensibility options with EventBridge. Because in my example, I only indexed three different types of file. I think it was uh, Microsoft Word documents and JPEGs and and a couple of others. But you could start to build an adapter framework based upon EventBridge, where if you wanted to add new and different types of file, that could be done easily. And so what was really interesting is that the architecture from the original diagram actually becomes much easier to understand and maintain when you bring EventBridge into the middle as this coordinating feature around all these different services that make the application work. Yeah, that that is actually a really, really interesting uh, thing. And, and, and so... Yeah, for the listeners out there, I know you mentioned you're going to share the GitHub repos. Uh, is there any other resources that people could look at? Is there any online courses for EventBridge yet? So at the moment, we have a number of different, we call them learning paths, where they're collections of different videos and articles and resources. And so we have a learning path for EventBridge. Uh, and we have them also for this S3 to Lambda pattern. Where I wrote this series on those two. But we've started to build those sorts of things where each of them has videos and articles and also GitHub repos that you can refer to. In terms of just general learning resources, there's lots of information you can also find on the serverless website, which is aws.amazon.com forward slash serverless. We're starting to build more and add more more learning resources on those pages there. Fantastic. Um, for serverless, uh, what do you think the adoption rate looks like? Or you, when you started getting into serverless a few a few years ago, uh, compared to now, how does that shake out? Is it where you thought it would be? How do you feel like it's 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 growing much more rapidly? And and what do you think in the future might increase adoption? The adoption's been staggering. If you look at just the last couple of years, um, you know, at AWS there are hundreds of thousands of customers using Lambda every week, all running trillions of invocations. The scale is absolutely staggering. And I think it's interesting when you look at the distribution because we see large companies using it. You've got companies like Dunelm or Fannie Mae. They they're using it for enormous scale applications. We've got machine learning shops using it all the time too. There's people using it for data processing, uh, web app development, front ends or back ends and mobile back ends. And then you've got small, smaller startups that are using it just for the abilities it gives you in terms of building things quickly and being able to experiment without spending an enormous amount of money. And then globally, we see patterns where there's accelerating up adoptions in places like South America and in Europe. And so there's different patterns there where there's lots of people using already in the US, but it's really accelerating outside of the US. And so to me, it's it's just amazing how quickly it's changing. The hardest problem, of course, is keeping up with everything that's happening because AWS is, is releasing so many features on so many different services that benefit serverless developers. A lot of it's just making sure that you can keep pace with, with the rate of change. But I think within the community itself, we've got some really amazing community partners. When you look at serverless days and what Ant Stanley has built there with the organization, or you look at some of the newsletters like Jeremy Daly, Daly's uh, Off by Non-Newsletter, which is really fantastic. And then you look at what the AWS serverless heroes have been doing and contributing to the community. I think they've all done an amazing job in helping us keep in contact with developers and helping new developers who are just coming into serverless really keep up with what's going on. And suppose with all of that too, I think it's become actually a lot easier today than it was three years ago to build these applications. I think the tooling is a lot better. We have better observability capabilities. And you look at tools like AWS SAM, the serverless application model, 
it makes it truly easy to deploy and manage these sorts of applications. So that yeah, the growth curve is definitely up and to the right. It's we see this acceleration of adoption that really shows no sign of slowing down. And I think within a few de- few years, it becomes the really the standard way that we build most applications. Wow, fantastic! And the last question of the podcast, um, leading up to this, and I wasn't going to ask it. I was actually going to close out, but then he said something right at the end, which made me go, okay. If this is what is going to be the standard way of building things in the cloud, what happens to the word serverless? And is it serverless or cloud native? Is it just cloud? Um, do we have to keep juggling all these terms? Like, what is your opinion on this? It's a great question. I mean, in some respects, serverless is a, is helpful and unhelpful because we some, the people in the community know generally what serverless is, even though there's some debate. You know, we know that you need you have a compute layer that's on demand like Lambda. We know that generally you have this pay for value model where if you're not using it, you're not paying for it. And we know that we, we there are features such as things being fully managed or automatically scaled for you. And obviously, as you start to bring in more services that are fully managed. And some of them, and you know, they're not always AWS. We've got customers, we've got customers and partners like Auth0, people like Stripe, who these applications reach across and integrate with those, with those SaaS providers that really it's more of a bit of a managed architecture. And I'm sure we'll start to see the growth of applications on Fargate as well with Lambda becoming, those will start to become closer as time continues. And so serverless will become one of those terms like electronic was in the 1980s or cloud was and you know we know what it means as we're starting to adopt to it uh, as we start to move to it but once you're there the term might become redundant just because it's the way that you're doing everything well fantastic and i think that that is a wrap so i just want to thank you again james for coming on it was great to have you on and kind of go through all this stuff super insightful material um so thank you again oh thanks very much it's really a pleasure to talk to you uh james i forgot to ask you to say say your uh twitter name again um yeah. do you mind doing that Sure, sure. So you can DM me anytime on Twitter. My handle is J-B-E-S-W. You can also email me at Amazon. I'm jbezik, which is J-B-E-S-W-I-C-K at Amazon.com. And I really enjoy hearing from everybody. If you have any thoughts or ideas about what we should be building or problems you're having or just interesting things you've built, you know, feel free to drop me a line. Awesome. Well, to those listening, uh, this has been the Talking Serverless Podcast with Brian Jones. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out TalkingServerless.io or please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And of course, join us next time as we sit down with another fantastic serverless guest.